Welcome to the Alex Merced Cast, where Alex Merced of alexmerced.com brings you principled, thoughtful, libertarian commentary on issues that matter. This is Alex Merced, and you're listening to the Alex Merced Pass. Now, as you know, healthcare uh, is becoming more and more of an issue in the political discourse. So healthcare goes beyond just our day-to-day care. also goes to the care that we have in, in different times in our lives, such as the times that we have a disability. So today I have a very special guest to talk about their experiences and their knowledge of, of the healthcare system and the resources that are available. Um, I have uh, Daniel Tom, uh, Thomas Daniel Peter on the show today. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Hi, thank you for having me. So, well, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about who you are first and just kind of like what your story is, and then we'll kind of start diving deep into sort of uh, the, the issue and the resources that people should be aware of. Okay, I hope you have time. <laughs> um, well, you know my name, and I was born in 1983 in a rural town in New York, uh, Sydney hospital at the time, and I was lucky to be diagnosed because one of the doctors involved had done a um, intern at the OI clinic in New York, so he actually knew about this disease, and at the time, most people didn't. Um, it's actually hard to find a doctor that's familiar with it uh, directly. They may know the name and about it, but they haven't dealt with it. I was born six weeks late as a breach. I came out one leg first. I sustained over 25 fractures, including my skull and limbs. And I was originally diagnosed as a type 3 OI, or osteogenesis imperfecta. The name is older than the understanding of the disease, and it means bone gene imperfect. And it's actually a collagen gene that's affected. But that makes your bones weak, and that's the primary symptom. I was born to a couple, Donna and Mike Quader. At the time, they were pretty much working for room and board on a farm. About as, about as poor as you can get in upstate New York and still have a place to live. And after I was born, the I don't know if it was a protocol or somebody's choice or decision, but a social worker was called to come offer to take me away. My mother did not react very well from that. <laughs> um, the story goes, she tried to cut out her heart. <laughs> but, but she was uh, also still heavily medicated from giving birth. Um, so that's a big struggle, right? I mean, think about that. You're a young couple with nothing, and you're born, or you, you've just birthed a child, and the doctor tells you it's as fragile as a cracked, hollowed egg. Um, and they also tell you that it's likely not to survive. I obviously did survive, and that changed my diagnosis to a type 3. That's the biggest differential. Um, but I continued to be given medical death sentences, uh, uh, life expectancies. That the last one they tried to give me was 21. I'm 35 years old now. Wow, so when it comes, Yeah, and um, oh, when I was 16, I started receiving a treatment. It's uh, bisphosphonate. You might have seen commercials for Fosamax or Boniva. It's, it's that family of drugs that, that increases density of, of your bone. And that took my fracture rate from over 100 a year to less than one. 
that costs about $30,000 a year. So when we talk about changing health care, I mean, are they looking at that for everybody? Because I'm just one rare disease. You know, there are thousands and thousands of rare diseases. There are thousands of diseases that if you had a convention for them, you might have one to five people show up globally. You know, um, their needs are largely not understood, largely not looked at, and largely um, underestimated. And take myself, which I do, because I am the best example, unfortunately. I hate being seen, but here I am. Um, my small local community of Mount Upton, New York, in fact, uh, certain members of the board for the school fought for me to be able to go to school. They installed wheelchair ramps in the schools that I was at. And that's amazing. That's locals, you know, because of the people on the board were local and knew my family and fought for me to be able to go to school. So here I am struggling through school with this condition. I mean, I'm going to school with broken arms, broken legs. I'm often hiding them from both my parents and the school just so that I can go to school because I wanted an education. I had enough of an understanding that that, at the time, was my biggest right to fight for. It was my biggest vestige in life. Um, and I got it. I graduated with an advanced regents diploma. Um, I, I had, I can't remember if it was six credits or six classes more than the requirement for that, because as you can tell from the way I talk, probably, and if you can hear my wheelchair pacing, I'm a little manic. I don't like to sit still. I don't like to not be busy. And there's a large misconception that someone in my position just wants to sit there and flip the TV remote. Now, I graduated from high school and I went to Alfred State SUNY. Um, I only went, being as, as poor as my family was at dying. Um, because a state program called Vested, it's now changed to Access VR, um, told me that I would be able to go and have it paid for. And signed all their paperwork, and time comes, and I'm in Alfred, New York, alone. Now think about this. I'm fragile enough to have had well over a thousand fractures by age 16, and <laughs> I'm alone in a wheelchair on a campus that's two or three times size the town I grew up in. Um, their accessibility was wonderful for the dorm. They put it in a bathroom, um, all that. But I was also told that I would be given exceptions to some of the works. Now, uh, in an architectural program, which is what I went for, uh, at the time you would be required to draft manually by hand. And some of these drawings are very, very large. My arms aren't long enough to reach across them. But they accepted me, and they gave me the smiles and the nods and the we have to accommodate speech, right? And then I get there, and I'm doing great in every class that I don't have to draft in because there wasn't much help. And throughout that time, I've got financial aid calling me every two weeks telling me Vested was wrong about my funding, and then if I have to stay, or if I want to stay, I'm... I have to sign off on a federally subsidized loan. And it was a small amount, and so sure, 
you know, it's a small loan. If I'm an architect, I can handle that, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it continued and it continued and it continued and it was every two weeks I was signing off on this and that. And by the time I was halfway through my second semester, I was scared, depressed, felt alone, didn't really have any walks through the disability services on campus. Um, and none of the professors seemed to think I should be there. <laughs> so what we have here is, is a law mandating that's cumbersome to navigate. I would have had to fight for all of that so hard that I wouldn't have been able to do my work. So after that, where did you did you did you did you stay at the SUNY? I stayed at the SUNY for one year, and then I came home and beat my head on the table for two weeks because by the time I was through all that, I was an alcoholic. <laughs> um, I went to the DTs on my own after college because the experience was so terrible. Um, part of it's probably my own stubbornness, but uh, it's kind of hard to reach out to your family four hours away when you know they don't really have much and they can't really do much and they can't really come and help you with every little thing, you know? There just wasn't an avenue for it. But I got the smiles and the nods and the come, go to college. Everybody needs to go to college. It's right for everyone. And it wasn't right for me. And I left. I dropped out $9,000 plus in debt because I couldn't See continuing on that way. I, I could not see continuing. In hindsight, um, what do you? What could have been in place to make that experience different? Um, what would you? For those who want to see people in your situation have a better experience, what can they do? Or what? Is, what do you think would be the right avenues to sort of uh, improve that experience? Okay. Now here comes my other message, which I didn't tell you before the phone call. Um, I have an, I have a message of my own. I run a Facebook page. It's called Enabled. Um, and the slogan for it is to proliferate positive perspectives. And I try to show only positive things and only discuss things that, that are going in a positive way. Because if you have a disability and you look into things, all you can find is negatives everywhere. Um, when you really get at the facts. So, so what can people do? Here's the sad fact. There is absolutely nothing you can do to fix that situation right now. What you can do is have a pervasive underlying social effect on those around you. Find somebody in your community near you who needs help, whether they're disabled or not, and help them. You see, the the community needs to take back this idea of helping people from the government, because government does it badly. <laughs> um, there's an old saying, you get what you put in. Well, when it comes to welfare, taxpayers do not get what they put in. Um, Tell me a little more about what you mean by that. Like, for example, I mean, I understand the experience with the school where you got assistance for the school, but, it, but you, weren't, you didn't necessarily have the, the knowledge of the resources to fully take advantage of that. In what other aspect do you feel like um, what you got wasn't what was being put in? Okay, so imagine a world where everybody knew they would eventually have accessibility issues. 
you would have a lot more accessibility, wouldn't you? So uh -huh. if you so if you encourage citizens to reach out to their own community and see their own community, that's another problem. We don't see each other anymore. A lot of people don't know their neighbor, neighbors' names. Um, So in, in my position, the, the people who helped me most were people in my community, people who knew my family and reached out. And I realized I'm in a very small community with a very good family, and I know a lot of people who are not, and they're a lot worse off than I am. And I see people shouting out for these needs they think they need and getting them. and forgetting that the 70-year-old down the street is still taking care of their disabled child. <laughs> you need to reach out and help somebody near you, close to you, one-on-one, -on -one, direct. I'm not against organization, but I am against the idea that it's the only way we can help each other. Government is the utmost organization, is it not? <laughs> Yeah. And they do everything. They mismanage everything. And you'll have to forgive me. You'll have to forgive me. I do get a little manic and passionate here. <laughs> Please do. I, 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 I'm very interested to hear what you have to say. I'm very interested in hearing about your experiences because I think it's something that a lot of people don't get to hear of enough, and especially coming from uh, a libertarian perspective, um, oftentimes, you know, you don't spend enough time talking about sort of uh, the more unique situations that people find themselves in and how to deal with those situations, which is important because oh, that's... I, I like how you put that, more unique. There is no more unique, though. You see, you're Alex Merced. Alex, do you have any health conditions that are severe? Uh, I have potential for them, for sure. You do? Um, um, yeah. I mean, you don't have to get into the details, but everybody has the potential for that, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So when you talk about a unique situation, what you need to realize is that anybody can end up in that unique situation. And so is it so unique that we're all different? And it's the cookie-cutter approach to health care. And I have another example for you. Um, when I was 15, I received the best wheelchair I have ever had in my life. It was made by a small company out of, um, I believe it was Austin, Texas. Now, it was made by a father, son. They were aeronautics engineers for the Air Force, believe it or not. The son was a quadriplegic, unhappy with all the wheelchairs he'd ever gotten. And they made a sturdy, almost Henry Ford-style wheelchair, easy to fix, <laughs> um, parts that you can find, you know? You don't have to go through the distributor. Um, and that was called the Omega Track. I'm in one right now. I believe it's my fifth or sixth Omega Track. This one is now seven years old. I have duct tape on my armrest. And I've been paying to have the motors rebuilt, and I've tracked down other parts online. And I have to pay that out of pocket on top of paying for insurance. 
because it's more than five years old. Now, after five years, you can get a replacement chair. However, when the ACA came through, because it's all a push to put everybody on Medicare, all right? When the ACA came through, they mandated the private insurances can't pay more than the, the, the Medicare, okay? And that tops out at about $20, probably around 19 right? So now you have a company making this wheelchair that works, and it has the power, and it has a suspension that somebody like me needs even in the house, okay? And it's, it's about $30,000, right? And those prices are all exorbitant, and, I, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, so every wheelchair that I've tested to get a replacement hurts me to sit in. And the ACA did that. They, they ended this line of care. If I had $30,000, I couldn't go to the company and buy one. They put them out of business. Gotcha. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. So I went from someone with upward mobility, basically. I had the ability to get around. I had the ability to go anywhere um, as far as my small town and bumpy sidewalks and bad curbs are concerned because that's everywhere. Um, I, I had more freedom. Now, if all those things were made perfectly and stayed perfect, then I could use one of these crappy little chairs they can give me. But I can't. I can't even use those in my house. Just a flooring change that's about an eighth or quarter of an inch if you have a fracture. That's, that's bad. <laughs> um, I, it's hard to explain my disability to you and the, and the fragility, but I'm not the only one, and I'm not the only disability that's fragile like that. Got it. But let me uh, let's, let me see if I if I can summarize uh, your message real quick and correct me if I'm wrong. So I guess point number one is that we should be um, highlighting this positive because oftentimes people who are currently in a situation of disability, uh, one, are oftentimes surrounded by negativity. Two, that we all will probably one day be disabled, so we should spend more time discussing and being open to and discuss or, well addressing the issue of disability. And three, that one-size-fits-all one government solutions, especially federal government solutions, sometimes are so one-size-fits-all that it doesn't fit all and create unintended consequences like what happened with you and your chair. Can I put another angle on that? Oh, please do. Okay. What's the biggest age group population in this country right now? It's the baby boomers. Um, who has the most disposable money right now? Those who are retired. Baby boomers. And actually... Those who are on welfare, like myself, are considered disposable income um, to a degree. Uh, disposable meaning when I have to buy clothes, I go to a store and I buy clothes. So if you have a business, accessibility is a big issue for you. Forget the laws. Forget the mandates. Look at your customers. Look at where the money is. All of these nursing homes, disability homes, and programs bus people with disabilities to box stores like Walmart, and they don't have options. Now, think of it this way. You own a small business in Norwich. You run it all your life. You're successful. You pass it on to your kid. When you retire, you end up in a wheelchair, and all of a sudden you can't get in. You know, your, your son is running the business that you built, and you can't get into it. If you can't get into it, nobody like you can get into it. 
when we talk about disability, we need to talk about it as, as a bigger issue than just disabled people. It's also a part of the economy. I mean, health care alone is 20% of our country's economy. That's, so, that's, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a really good point. Right, and nobody's talking about this as a whole. I mean, if you think about the people who aren't baby boomers but are coming to that age, well, that's your next business, and behind them is your next business. And if you want to build a business that survives, you need to think about that. Disposable money is the economy these days. Gotcha. Now, we saw what the effect that the ACA had on you. Now, you live in New York. Has there been any effects of New York state policy or even local policy in your town of Mount Upton? <laughs> well, Mount Upton doesn't have a policy. It's technically a hamlet. Um, it's a hamlet of Guilford, and Guilford is um, different. It's not even big enough to address these issues much. I mean, they try when they can, and, of course, if the state says there's one thing for something, they go after it. But they're stuck in the, they're stuck in the bureaucratic paper mill. There's not a whole lot they can do. And Chenango County even gets stuck in the bureaucratic paper mill. Um, now, here's another interesting thing. I hear this a lot from other advocates and um, people who work in the business. Like, I, I have a services coordinator. I've had two. Um, they are a position in a private company that's paid to, by the state <laughs> to make sure I get all the services. Think about that for a minute. Um, they're very, very helpful. But why isn't that just a state position instead of uh, paying a business to somebody's property? Somebody's profiting on welfare. Now, I believe in business for profit. I do not believe in welfare for profit. Um, the statistic that I'm quoted over and over again, and I've been hearing this for at least five years, so it's old, is that services for the disabled in New York went down 50% over 10 years. So if you back that, that's from 2004 to 2014. Think about that. <laughs> and New York is very adamant in chasing the ACA. They want to be one of the leaders. They, they think it's wonderful. It's so wonderful that a few years ago, 5,000 disabled in individuals sued the state of New York for keeping them in homes after they qualified to re-enter the community. <laughs> um, it's crazy. And people think... Um, Homes are the answer, and they're not. Um, our illustrious Governor Andrew Cuomo just proposed a budget that removed $75 million from the CDPAP program. That program largely provides in-home care for those with um, medical needs beyond mine. You know, they need their medication, they need to be changed, things like that. Now, those people, if they lose AIDS because of that funding cut, they end up in homes. Homes are profitable. Homes are HUD times two. HUD is also profitable. HUD is largely profitable for politicians. Um, so, in worrying about the budget, our governor will put up and take down road signs that are not approved, <laughs> and then cut $75 million from those who are receiving services. And... Here's another point on it. Because this is a libertarian podcast, um, I am a taxationist-staffed guy. I fully believe that. I think that 
everything that the people need should be taken care of by the people amongst themselves. However, the problem with the ideology of just ending welfare is that over the past 80 years or so, we have created a huge dependent portion of the population. We're talking about everybody who's disabled and everybody who's elderly. Okay. Those people don't have other options right now. You take welfare away from them, and they will suffer greatly. Death will happen if that happens. But if somebody with some logic works on a transitional program to reduce welfare and spend that money on encouraging communities to do it themselves, volunteerism. You know, I mean, everything from positive propaganda about helping each other and civics to grants for projects for small communities. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with that. One of the efforts I know that was part of the Larry Sharper governor campaign and a lot of other states are doing a lot of libertarians are embracing is just sort of the idea of sort of providing a tax credit for sort of charitable giving to encourage, you know, individual taxpayers to kind of reallocate the tax fund to the things that are going to help their community more. So that way it helps build up that sort of local community aid and helps create that transition. Kind of like choosing your charity appropriately to make sure it's not misused. Correct. So the idea is to start, start sort of incentivizing people to think about how those, those aid dollars are allocated by giving them the power to more, so do it directly. Um, I, I think it started in Nevada or Arizona. I, I, um, there's, this, there's, a, there's a pack that actually focuses on pushing this policy in many states, and the states that it has done, it, it, there's been seen some positive results that, it, you know, there always is, you know, the devil's always in the details. Yeah. Well, by numbers, Arizona is the best state to live if you have a disability. Oh, really? their, um, their systems and services are the best. That's where you go to be happy. I know somebody who moved there from Georgia. <laughs> um, another thing I want to talk about, because this is New York, um, even before the great New York migration began and everybody started leaving, being very active in online disability groups, uh, I noticed that anybody with the power, money, or backing to leave New York in a disability did so. Why? Because they're in the system and they're the ones that see the ends of these policies, what happens because of them. Okay. So basically, the, some of these policies have sort of forced sort of migration between states. Well, I mean, it, it forced disability people, there are people with disabilities who who um, know what, what's coming down the pipeline when they hear things to run. The ship yeah, is sinking, and everybody's running. <laughs> that sounds like a very typical story here in New York. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, I mean, I, yeah. but it happens with people with disabilities who had the means first. Many of us yep. don't have the means. And that, gotcha. that's uh, I have a problem with the migration out of New York. I mean, you're not helping your own if you leave. I'm sorry, but you're not. <laughs> No, I, mean, I understand freedom and opportunity, and you can you can move around all you want. But I have a, a personal disagreement with not sticking to your own community, to at least some degree. I mean, I'm not saying it's for everybody, but it seems like uh, if everybody who's able to leave New York leaves New York, then everybody who's unable is left there, unable. Yep. No, I. I 
I, I definitely think that definitely the last several years has been a fight to try to stick around. It's becoming harder every day, but I, I feel I feel really. I heard you were thinking about leaving us. Yeah, it's getting it's getting hard. It's getting hard to say at this point, but I'm trying. Um, so, you know, I could put another business angle on this, um, and even an immigration angle. Um, we do not have enough young people to fill the care positions for our elderly, and it's getting worse. If we don't do something to open up some form of legal immigration to have younger people to do those jobs, that's a lot of suffering. Hmm. Yeah, um... Really, homes in upstate New York are already going through something like that. They're all understaffed. Um, they're all taking on lower quality staff because they don't have a choice. Thank you for listening to the Alex Merced cast. Learn more at alexmerced.com, libertarian101.com, and libertarianwingmedia.com. Follow Alex Merced on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.